0: Sequelcast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman on film.com. Who fuck you?
1: The last customer. After the credits roll,
0: there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sounds are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast, and they are past at following a franchise until the bitter end. This is Sequel Cast, and your host has asked that I inform you that the show will
1: now begin.
0: Hello, and welcome to Sequel Cast Two, a podcast looking at films in a franchise one movie at a time. I'm your host Matt Bradley sherge and with me is Thrasher.
1: I'm not going to podcast. Jack is going to podcast.
0: That's right. We are finishing up our summer of Death Wish with a 2018 remake most people has already forgotten was even released. Death Wish, starring Bruce Willis, directed by Eli Roth, produced by Roger Birnbaum, based on the novel by Brian Garfield. Starring Bruce Willis, Vincent D'Onofrio, Elizabeth Shue, Dean Norris, and Kimberly Elise. Music by Ludwig Göransson. cinematography Roger Stofers, edited by Mark Goldblatt. Uh, this came out in the United States, uh, March second, twenty eighteen. We look at the the gross. I think this is worldwide gross uh, off a budget of thirty million. It made forty eight point six million, which uh, is not great. But to be fair, it had been over twenty years since a uh, Death Wish film. I don't think you know people knew the name as much.
1: Well, Death Wish at this point was just kind of like a a joke was a joke on The Simpsons, the, the the infamous, and now a preview of Death Wish eight. And it's just Bronson on a hospital bed going, I wish I was dead. Like, that's all anyone really knew of Death Wish outside of you know, like film film nerds, really. Uh, and this wasn't a franchise anyone was clamoring to bring back. And I'm sure the plan was, well, let's make this a franchise. I'm sure there, was all, there were already plans for a Death Wish 2 before this was even released.
0: Well, and they had been trying to remake Death Wish for over a decade. At one point, Sylvester Stallone was going to do it. Um but that never happened, and um, in, in this, at one point, um, you know, Benicio Del Toro was considered, who I thought, frankly, would have been a more interesting lead, um, and and that, yeah, Bruce Willis, I mean, you have Bruce Willis is, is still a movie star, although I think he's kind of entered a sort of a similar phase that you see, like, a, a Nicolas Cage or someone has done, where they just do a lot of movies that end up coming out direct-to-video for whatever reason and come out with a lot of things...
1: Well, just like interesting, interesting little things, and then yeah. every now and then one of these way too big movies.
0: Yeah, this is sort of a bigger studio thing, um, and yeah, this is—I think—notably, the director on this is Eli Roth, who, who typically is known for doing uh, horror films like *Hostel* one and two and *Cabin Fever*.
1: Well, he's been branching out recently, like uh, like he mm-hmm. did uh, *The House with the Clock in Its Walls*, which I mentioned on *What You're Watching* a few months ago
0: yeah i heard that was good that was like sort of a a, a kid's sort of film right or a family spooky spooky film i guess they'd call it
1: yeah it was like a a, fa- a family a family spook'em up uh we'll call it but yeah like so like i i kind of like that Eli roth is branching out so so like with like with eli roth i i think like he is ridiculous. Re- ridiculously knowledgeable about horror movies and and various other things. And, but I've always been generally speaking a little bit underwhelmed by the, the movies that he makes, despite really like, I love to hear him talk about horror films. Uh, he's done, he's done some audio commentaries for some B horror movies that are a delight, particularly blood sucking freaks from trauma. Hmm. That is well worth your time listening to. Um, but yeah, I've always been a bit let down. Uh, my my wife has a real love hate relationship with Eli Roth because on paper, his move, all of his movies sound like exactly the kind of horror movie she wants. But she <laughs> always doesn't. She always like ends up not liking them, and then at the end, directed by Eli Roth, and then she goes, "Oh, he got me again." Like if she knows it's Eli Roth, she won't watch it. So as a result, she's always stumbling upon Eli Roth movies. <laughs>
0: So, like, she likes the idea, it's just not the execution,
1: necessarily. Uh, Essential, Essentially, yes. Yeah.
0: Right. Um, I mean, you know, when I... I remember this movie was originally supposed to come out, and, and then it got delayed a few times, which isn't unusual. And then I think it, it came around the time of... Um, oh, it might have been the shooting in Vegas or something like that. You had a lot of, unfortunately, um, massacres happening in the news at the time. You still do, frankly. Uh, And that made the politics of this movie sort of different. And I I went into this movie really hoping that maybe despite starring Bruce Willis, and this isn't a slam on him, but that it would maybe be more intellectual or or actually have something to say and make the viewer think a bit. And um, they, they try here and there, but they could have pushed that further. I don't
1: well, tonally, the movie is all over the place, because yes, sometimes yes. it's trying to be a serious look at violence, and then sometimes uh, it is just, like, straight-up gun fetishism. Uh, then sometimes it's, like, all the elements you would see in a classic Death Wish movie but turned up to 11. But then sometimes it's a gore fest. Uh, and, like, like there's a... Uh, you know, my, my quote at the beginning, I'm not going to kill you, or I'm not going to podcast with you. Jack's going to. Like... That's this one moment that's completely out of nowhere, where in a movie where no one quips, all of a sudden, uh, Paul Kersey quips, and it just, it jars so much with everything else in the movie. The movie I mean, does that, not know what yeah, it wants to be.
0: That scene we'll talk about when we get to it, but it feels like something out of a 90s Schwarzenegger movie. Oh, yeah. With this sort of pun. and. Uh, but combined
1: you know, t- with 1980s direct-to-video gore. <laughs>
0: Um, sure, and Eli, I mean, that's maybe where you see Eli Ross horror influence, is they do go go big on the gore, and um, I, I do like in this movie, They it does take place in present day, so it, social media is sort of a plot uh, to an extent.
1: Which Well, it's the first Death Wish movie, and possibly the first movie in general, where the protagonist is inspired by a targeted YouTube ad. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, yeah, good point. Um. But with this film, I think uh, much like the original, it is, um, you spend some time with the family before they get uh, you know, murdered and so forth. And in this one, Paul Kersey, he is not an architect, he's a surgeon, which I think makes a lot of sense. I think that was a very smart change. The architect uh, job in the other Death Wish movies just seemed um, uh, arbitrary. I believe in the novel, uh, Kersey is an accountant or something or a risk analyst actually. Uh and so in this that he's a trauma that surgeon and they build that into the plot somewhat um well, I it think it's a good like choice. An,
1: it seemed like an arbitrary choice for me up until like the second half of the movie. The second half of the movie mm-hmm. him being a surgeon pays off in some interesting ways.
0: Right. And um what do you think about the actors they have about sort of the main performances of the good of, of the good guys that we sort of before all, all the, uh, the home invasion happens. So, first of all, uh, Bruce Willis as Paul Kersey. Um, he seems to be in autopilot mode, I think. He seems a bit sleepy. I don't know what it is. Like, sometimes he's really engaged in movies and good, and other times he just seems to be phoning it in. And I think this one, I just was not terribly compelling to me.
1: Well, you know what it is—is is there? There are he, the way he acts. He acts like someone who's been numbed by trauma, but he acts that mm-hmm. way most of the film. even like way before the trauma happens. If he had if he had some of that old fashioned Bruce Willis bounce to him, and then transitioned into that that numbness, I think that would have been really effective. But instead, it's just like I can't believe that he cares about anything in this movie just because he's so oh, through most of it.
0: Yeah, he's really underplaying it. Um, his brother Frank is played by Vincent D'Onofrio, who I think is really good, and frankly should have been the lead instead.
1: I liked Vincent's performance. He he was he, he was a welcome part of this film. Uh, I, I'll, however, and I'll talk about it when it happens, but I feel like it there was a there were some really big missed opportunities with with Vincent D'Onofrio as Frank Kersey.
0: And then uh, the wife, uh, Lucy, is played by Elizabeth Shue, who I have not seen in a movie in a, in a long time. That was kind of fun to see her again in something. Uh, not that they give her much to do, but...
1: I mean, I mean, that's, that's unfor- the unfortunate thing, is she, she fits into the role that, that women pretty much always fit into in the Death Wish movies. She's the wife that will be brutally disposed of in the first act.
0: I think the opening scene, you know, is kind of cute, where the daughter is going to find out if she's in college or not, but she finds out via an email, not a not a letter in the mail. And they're kind of com- Bruce Willis is complaining about that. Um, and not the best scene in the world, but then later they go out to have a celebratory uh, dinner with his brother, and they kind of set up. They kind of lay the pipe that the daughter has been taking these uh, self defense classes.
1: What. Yeah, well, that, that's kind of the thing, and, th- and this kind of goes into the the family dynamic. I like the family dynamic. I mean, uh, the all all the Curzys really do work together. They, they, I believe that they're a family. And Vincent D'Onofrio's whole part of this family is that. So we know we know that Paul Curzy, he, he's he's a doctor, he's a respected surgeon, but Frank Kersey... He's kind of the family fuck up. He's uh he's has hard time finding work. He has to borrow money from Paul uh to the point where I almost thought the twist in this movie was that Frank Kersey was going to end up getting involved in crime and there was going to be a brother mm. a brother against brother showdown. That, of course, did not happen, but he played a really good, fun uncle, and I really did like that moment where he's talking to his niece and be like, hey, you know what you should do? Like, you, sh- you should learn Krog Maga, God. Oh, that's mm-hmm. great martial art. And he's like, well, maybe I already know it. And she does that, like, headlock, headlock move on him. Yeah. Like, that... That's like th- that moment going forward. I'm like, I'm going to be so upset when these characters are killed.
0: Right. I mean, so I think that that's something this does does in a way better than the original movie. Is you do see the family as a unit interact. In the first one, I if I recall correctly, you just sort of see him and the wife on the beach, and uh, she gets knocked off right away. And this it, it gives you some time to breathe before it happens. Um, and when the uh, the burglars come in and leave the daughter in a coma and, and kill the wife. I have to say, compared to how, like, the first two Death Wish movies do this kind of scene, this is somewhat restrained.
1: Well, especially... Or less rapey, the, certainly. I, well, especially compared to the violence we're going to see later in the movie, because mm-hmm. uh, when the home invasion happened, you know... Uh, uh Dr. Paul Cursey's been called in called in to to surgery so he's not going to be there to celebrate with the wife and daughter and so his wife and daughter are at home and these and this is one thing that I kind of that kind of works is that there's a uh, there's uh, a there's effectively like an, there's an Uber driver uh goes by what was it, Ebj?
0: Uh, I think so yeah
1: yeah at, who uh takes a photo of his own car's GPS <laughs> Uh, which seems like, no, you would be using, probably using the GPS on your phone. But anyway, because cause one thing that's interesting is that he is, he, as this as an Uber driver, cases joints for people, which is and kind of a neat that, way really to And that's really
0: clever and, frankly, believable. I bet there's been real situations of um, l- less than wholesome Uber drivers doing such a thing, I would think, you know.
1: Well there there well, actually there was a thing a, f- a few years ago where it was like a uh, there was a there was a, a pizza delivery person who I wish I could remember the specific details but there was a pizza delivery person who served uh, who delivered pizza to this fancy swanky neighborhood but that's what he would do he would actually he would like case the joint while he was waiting for his tip
0: you know mm. he just kind
1: of Eyeball the place, mark down where the expensive cars were, and then you know people would come in a week later and, and rob the place. But anyway, yeah, so that's that's how their house becomes targeted uh, by the crooks. So that night, uh, three masked individuals come in, and this is where Eli Roth's horror chops do work because we have your three criminals. They're all they're all in black, uh, but their masks. Have you their masks are those full face hoods that you can print other people's faces on. Mm-hmm. And so they all so like they all have like the same face stretched over their face and it's really disturbing.
0: Yeah, I think that's a a unique choice and um uh, on the flip side though it's not because they all kind of look the same you don't have have the quirkiness like from the original Death Wish film where Jeff Goldblum is one of the robbers essentially looks like Jughead or these people you know kind of look like Mad Max punks or whatever and, and in this one it's I guess they're going more for realism or something a little bit more more grounded but Eli Roth does a great job with the suspense as they break into the house then you have the struggle with the wife and the daughter against the the robbers and uh, it's yeah it's a, it's a good good
1: sequence. Yeah, I I can't speak I can't speak to its realism, but clearly they're supposed to be professional criminals. Uh, but they do make the mistake that so many professional criminals make in movies—they don't stick to the plan. Mm-hmm. So one of the guys takes the wife upstairs to open the family safe to get, you know, cash watches and whatnot out of it. And then there's a Chekhov's watch uh, in that safe. There's an anniversary <laughs> gift for Paul. Um, and so the wife is panicky. And so it's taken her a while to open the safe. Meanwhile, downstairs they uh they're supposed to tie up the daughter and keep an eye on her so that she can't call the police or fight back. And right off the bat, they didn't think to bring rope. <clears throat> so, that's that's really dumb. If you if you know there's going to be multiple people in the house and you're going to want to tie up at least one of them, you bring your own nylon rope. So one of the crooks has to go out search the garage for something they can use to tie the daughter up with. Well, and I, um, I like the
0: the trait that one of the guys downstairs is a bit pervy.
1: Well, and and he's the he's the wink link because he's Mm -hmm. specifically told just tie the daughter up and keep an eye on her. No funny business. But the moment that guy's alone, he starts trying to touch the daughter, um, and that's when he makes another mistake. Is he's got a knife? He leaves the knife on the table. Um, So eventually, uh, you know, the other crook comes in with uh, an extension cord to tie the daughter up. The main the the ringleader comes down with the wife and the stuff he's taken from from the safe and this is one thing scene part of the scene that I loved because we've never seen anyone effectively fight back the wife and the daughter fight like hell Um, yeah yeah the daughter picks the knife up off the table and slashes her assailant across the face uh, and then the wife who is making a Greek milk pie. Uh, We're in the process of doing that, had left a pot of water on the stove. Well, that's boiling hot water. And she just flings that water into the guy's face. Uh, And the guy's in so much pain, he rips his mask off. And that's when they see, well, we have two people who have seen your real face, you idiot. And then, rather effectively, they just cut to the outside of the house, and we see two flashes, and we hear two bangs. And as and that was and and even though we don't see the violence, that was very shocking to me.
0: Well, and I I think also what's what's effective is then they had already set up Paul Kersey had to do a a late night call at work. And then someone comes in and he puts the the two together and and it's uh, his wife and his daughter. And and they're told, like, no, don't go in there. And I thought, like, that that he's at work, that he's doing this job and it, it. suddenly becomes personal for him i I thought was a good choice is it as powerful as and i hate I i guess i'm comparing this a lot to the first movie but this is a remake really uh in that first movie you have that wonderful scene where paul kersey comes in or i guess i'm talking about something later where he kills a guy and vomits but i mean you know you but i'm kind of jumping all around the place uh anyhow i think you know i think that's a good scene and then Um, and what do you think about the introduction to the movie where you have, like, uh, radio DJs talking about crime in Chicago?
1: Okay, so yeah, this is set in in Chicago. Which uh, has had a
0: lot of very violent murders. Well, Um, I
1: mean, it's, it's had, it's, I mean, it's, Chicago's the home of the Chicago mob. I mean, mm -hmm, it's, 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 it's a, a... Had it's it's had its trouble. That being said, I've visited Chicago twice this year uh, for work, uh, and I've had a great time both times. Had some deep dish pizza, uh, which is featured in this movie, so that you are reminded that it's Chicago. Um, but this whole this whole DJ thing to an extent so something that i think can ground a movie especially a fantastic movie is when you have real media personalities commenting on the fantastic stuff just like it's it's real like i i'll admit like i'm a sucker in a superhero movie if they cut to like a cnn anchor reporting <laughs> on reporting on you know what whatever crossbones and the fatal five are up to <clears throat> in the news so so that I liked, I liked that we saw some real radio personalities giving working as our, our Greek chorus, and unfortunately, that is as close as the movie comes to like discussing the ethics of what Paul's Kersey is going to do, um, especially on that that sh- was it the Shui Show or the Shaw Show?
0: Uh, Sway, and and that was the one Sway. DJ I did recognize. He I, I sometimes listen to him when I'm at work, and he's done a lot of really interesting. Uh, interviews, but yeah, it's it's like him talking to people about oh should 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 we defend ourselves or whatever. And also in in kind of the opening scene, setting up Kersey at his job at the hospital, uh, they, they try to raise the specter of, of debate, but don't do much with it. Where um, a cop, what, it, it's something like there's a cop and someone gets a civilian gets shot, and then there's like the civilian and the person that shot the civilian. Uh, they're both taken to the ER. The civilian dies, and then Kersey immediately goes to try and save the life of the killer. And the cop's like, "How can you do that?" And he's like, "It's my job to save lives." And it's like, "Well, that's right. That is a surgeon's job. You should, if you don't want to, you know, basically save people's lives, you shouldn't be a surgeon."
1: Yeah, it all it all connects to you know to first do no harm. Uh, mm-hmm. But the other DJ that's featured ridiculously prominently is Man Cow from Man Cow in the Mornings. Uh, that's uh, I'm like, guessing you have jokey, a history right? with Man Cow.
0: <laughs> Man kind of jokey, isn't he? Usually, like,
1: <clears throat> well, well, I mean, he's 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 a. So when when the Simpsons makes fun of a morning radio DJ, they're making fun of his kind of show. Mm. At, at least what it was in the '90s. I don't know if he's transitioned to doing a more one person with a microphone local politics show, but yeah, I I used to listen to him quite a bit in the '90s, and he was he was great and hilarious. Up until like about 99 when his show took a hard turn into him just looking for excuses to have rants and nothing happening on the show. Just him having rants about whatever had just happened in the news. And it got very, very unfun and I stopped listening to it. And switched over to our local radio uh, host, Tommy and Rumble, uh, formerly Tommy and the Bull, formerly Tommy and McGregor, McGillicuddy, Terwilliger, and I think there's some more. Um, But I've actually seen him live.
0: Hmm.
1: So our alternative station in the 90s, 96X, they carried the syndicated version of his show, and they did this music festival called X-Fest, and he was the MC. (laughs) So I guess to me, his presence grounds this movie in reality because it's a guy I've seen in the flesh, but I have no idea if anybody else connects to it in that manner.
0: That's really cool. Um Alright, so moving so on yeah, the, the, Oh, the, go ahead.
1: The wife the wife dies, there there's a there's a funeral, and the funeral should be probably the be the emotional low point of the movie. However, his wife his father in law over the grave says some, it's like, it's like so here's the deal. Like I, peop, I have lost people in my life to tragedy, and there are certainly moments wh- where you're like, how can there be a just God if this thing can happen? You save that for your therapist, you save that for your priest, your rabbi, uh, what have you, and for a one on one session. You don't give that speech at the funeral.
0: But but I have seen that happen in in real life. I went. To, I'm not going to say who it's for, but um, I went to a funeral and and a a, a, a family member said, uh, "God has taken this person from us early." And like, oh my god, like, and yeah, I mean, but you're right. Emotions do run high at those funerals, uh, whether it's because of a tragedy or a, a you know a natural death, so to speak, and that it's a bit over the top i think and this this funeral scene could have been more low key could have been more emotion could have been a good opportunity for bruce willis acting and it's not like it's they blow it yeah,
1: he's just silent through the whole service mm-hmm. like i want to hear what he has to say about his wife's passing
0: yeah doesn't have to be a 30 minute speech but can just yeah a grace note something and it 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 really just makes the character seem like a zombie i, I don't know like it it doesn't have a lot of heart to it Uh, not that Charles Bronson was the most expressive actor but at least with with him you felt like he loved his wife and I don't get that from Bruce Willis
1: yeah and 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 this is so he's he's in so he's in texas for the funeral because his wife we find early on it's dropped that the wife is from texas and she wanted to be apparently the family has farmland out there and that's where she wanted to be buried so that's where they're doing uh the funeral um and so i do kind of like that just like in the first film he goes to texas uh for for a reason and just like in the first film in texas is when he first really gets acquainted with firearms uh so after the funeral, his father-in-law is in his father-in-law's truck and they're driving back, I guess, you know, to, to the family ranch house. Uh and in a scene that I both loved and hated, uh, they're dri- they're just driving down the road and all of a sudden you hear this bang, and the father-in-law just gets deathly silent and, and, like, and turns off the road, drives through a field. Uh, well it turns out that bang they are on uh, his the his his farmland those were poachers hunting deer on his farmland without his permission and that is that is a problem uh, and I, I can as somebody who has who has hunted and has taken some firearm safety courses uh, you know, Po- poaching is a problem. if you're going to be hunting on someone else's land, you had best make sure you get their permission. Uh, but you know he, he pulls out in front of the in front of the, uh, the poachers and just grabs a shotgun and he goes, "Come on, let's go!" <laughs> and you know runs out firing firing wildly, chasing the poachers off uh, and then turns out the poachers have left a deer behind. So a few, th- a few things that really bother me about this scene one. This was this exact situation was covered in one of the firearm and hunter safety courses I've taken, which is how do you confront poachers on your property or someone you know is poaching Hmm. on someone else's property? The last thing you want to do is pull a gun on the poachers because they're already armed and they will already have their weapons out. You will have just like the moment you pull your gun, they can claim self-defense. Right, Uh, because you have just threatened them with a firearm. Uh, You know you're you're supposed to you're supposed to sort of either you call the game warden or you come out and play negotiator and just say, "Hey, get the fuck off my property." And in most cases, they will because you know they 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 don't want to have to deal with uh, a police report getting filed against them. Second, the deer they shot, it looks like they shot it exclusively in the groin.
0: That's a hard shot Uh, to make.
1: Yeah, which is well, it's not only hard of to make. That's the last place you don't want to shoot the back end of a deer because if you do, you could rupture the bladder or you could rupture the colon. In which case, congratulations, the meat you want is now contaminated by urine and mm. feces containing all mess of bacteria. So you've just ruined the deer. You're not going to be. You're not going to eat it. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, th- those two things bothered me so much about about this movie.
0: <laughs> and as, as me, I've never done um, hunting, although I have, have relatives that, that do, that live in Pennsylvania, and the hunting season is days they get off school and stuff, you know. Uh, and, uh, but, but anyhow, you know, that, that's really interesting insight. I think, like, this scene, I, I could take it or leave it. It's kind of over the top. It's kind of fun. I wish the movie... I wish um, the father-in-law was was more of a character... Or something, uh, it, but it's just not. It just feels so removed from the rest of the film.
1: Yeah, like in in all honesty, like I thought, uh, like I, I I thought we were gonna have some time to breathe here a bit. Mm-hmm. I also mm-hmm. I also kind of thought, you know, like I also thought we were gonna have a scene where the father-in-law was like, "Well, why didn't you grab that other shotgun that I left in the car for you?" Well, here, let's let me show. you, Oh, you don't know how to use it? Well, let me show you. How, <clears throat> let me show you how to use it. <clears throat> Excuse me so so yeah there there were some there were some opportunities they didn't take, but the daughter is in a coma um when uh Paul Kersey uh goes back uh to Chicago uh you know this is after after his father in law has had this whole little mini speech when he when he puts the deer out of his misery saying, "If you want to protect things, you got to do it yourself you know he's walking home late at night, and he sees these two he sees these two punks uh, harassing a woman. And he's like, you know, hey, you stop that in his sleepy Paul Kersey way. Mm. Uh, and uh, they beat the crap out of him. But at least the woman gets away.
0: Right. And, and that that scene, I think, is OK. It's also worth noting. It's not much of character development, but it's something. But at the beginning where the whole family is having that lunch at, you know, Chili's or wherever the hell it is. Uh, The brother mentioned, points out to the daughter, you know, your dad, he used to be a scrapper. He used to be able to take people in a fight, which is some kind of a setup,
1: but... Well, you you know, that's something that this movie has that I like that they kind of let it be threaded through the background because... If you if you piece the, the stuff in the movie together, you realize that uh, Paul and Frank Kersey mm-hmm. came from an abusive family. Uh, no, clearly there and and their father, who they've obviously completely cut ties with, because they never they hardly ever talk about him, and we never see their father. What uh, was was abusive, and uh, it's my understanding that in those kind of households, you do, if only out of desperation, you do kind of learn how to fight. Uh, <clears throat> Although you know, I guess Paul's kind of kind of lost his edge uh, over the years, but I really I really find that fascinating, and I and I, I applaud the movie's restraint for like not giving us any flashbacks to a tragic childhood or any mm. long speeches about that. That it's just kind of left as part of the family history that they don't like talking about. That the that uh, the that, that the Kersey father that the Kersey brothers' father. Uh, was abusive to them, and that that's what they had to escape. Uh, and it's part of the reason why you know Paul's a doctor. He used education uh, to escape, uh, and possibly the reason why Frank is a bit of a fuck up because he never really had like a, a he never really had a decent male presence in his life. Although his fuck up status ends pretty early uh, because he does get a job, gets paid union wages, and does start paying uh, Paul back uh, uh, towards the third act of the film. But we get some real plot convenience uh, coming up because Paul's back. Paul's decided to go back to work. He's back performing surgery. And uh, there was a shootout between some gang members uh, and the – (laughs) <laughs> a gang member is brought in uh, to be to be saved, and while he's on the operating table, a loaded gun falls out of the gang member's pocket, which no one notices except Paul Kersey, and keep in mind, there's people on either side of him, mm-hmm. and it makes a loud noise when it clatters to the floor, and he decides, oh, well, this was after he failed to buy a gun at a gun shop because he was a bit overwhelmed, and um, and so his solution, oh well, I guess maybe that gun will be the one that I use, so he nudges it under the mobile rolling operating table uh to 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 secure it and this is another thing that doesn't quite jive with me because it's my understanding that if you're in that like you will basically be checked for that because like if you're if you're in an ambulance. They will go through your pockets because they want to find your wallet so that they can get your, your, they can get like your organ donor information, your home address, information they're going to need to process you through the hospital and contact your friends and relatives. The people in the ambulance should have found that gun, so this is like another thing in the movie that only happens because somebody was bad at their job
0: right, and, and that it's a convenience um, is so much less effective. Than in the original movie, where he gets the gun as the gift, remember yeah, from the guy in Texas, so now we we see him you know using online ads and online videos to to how to use the gun, which is boring, not really satisfying
1: um well, to jazz it up, they give us a c d c s back in black
0: <laughs> yes, and he wears a hoodie, and people call him the Grim Reaper because people film video of him stopping a carjacking.
1: Um, There's lots of video of him, but they never get his face.
0: <laughs> and I think you know, this is potentially because of when this is released, but that they have a hoodie as the way to disguise himself, I think, is kind of unfortunate because it reminds me of the uh, oh, the boy in the Florida, Trayvon Martin. The, yeah, Trayvon Martin, the boy in Florida that mm. was killed with the hoodie, and that was a big uh, hoods up, you know, sort of thing in in uh, in the news and. It just seems, and I, I mean, a hoodie does hide your face, but sort of, kind of, yeah. He could have used a mask. He could have. I mean, it is looking back on it, it is weird in the older movies that Percy never really disguises his face or anything.
1: Well, I guess I guess he he expects that he'll be one hundred percent successful. Um, and that's something that's something that I do kind of like in this movie is that is that Percy doesn't really know how to use a gun. Yeah, I'll, like the, I'll
0: give you that. that he injures himself.
1: Yeah, he injures himself when when it, when the the breech slides closed and cuts his hand because he's holding the gun wrong. Like I love I love that that moment, that moment of vulnerability, uh, but also that it it kind of plays into the investigation because the uh, <clears throat> the police detective who's investigating his wife's murder, um, uh, he uh, excuse me, he also ends up investigating the Grim Reaper killings.
0: Right, and this is meant to be an analog to the uh, character played by Vincent uh, Gordonia in the the first two films, and he he's not as memorable. That instead of having him you know sneeze all the time, he has like gluten intolerance or something uh, as his gimmick.
1: Well, he's he's doing a gluten free diet definitely, and uh, Detective. Uh, Le- uh... Leonore uh, Jackson, uh, who he's often partnered with, is mm. always kind of razzing him about that. And she's the young one. You know, she's just full of full of piss and vinegar. And she's like, you know, well, you know what I'm going to do? Uh, I'm going to get us some carbs. Don't be cruel. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to get you some donut holes. I know that's what you want. <laughs> and, like, the only thing we see him eating is this, like, organic fig bar <laughs> that apparently tastes gross. I've had
0: organic fig bars. There's not They're not too bad. I mean, if you want... They could have gone a lot weirder for an example of something gross, but, but there I mean, you go. I I've had good and I've had bad. Uh, sure. I, um, in fact, the first organic thing I ever ate was organic dried pineapple, which is like chewing on rocks, because it had no—it uh, was not softened. It was meant to be—it was dehydrated. It was meant to be reconstituted with water, which I did not know. So, lessons learned the hard way. Um, so, yeah, you get the, the detective yeah. trying to get Paul. Paul is going around— um, Killing people, and as you mentioned, the the deaths are are quite bloody. They don't shy away from the the blood and gore and Viserys.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's blood splatter. It is thick. It's not that corn syrup nonsense. Uh, we see some organs. We see organs fall out of somebody uh, at one point. I mean, it's. And that, that is something I will uh, – And I think this comes from Eli Roth's horror background. I like that the deaths are gory. I like that firearms at close range are messy because in real life, firearms at close range are messy. Um, it, it, there, there are no sanitized gun uh, bullet wounds in this movie.
0: And you had mentioned earlier Chekhov's watch.
1: Well, yeah. There's che- there's checkoffs. Well, actually, two. Che- there's two checkoffs. There's Chekhov's watch uh, that uh, that uh, anniversary gift. So two watches were stolen from the safe. One was the anniversary gift watch, and one was just like his favorite watch. Uh, and at one point, uh, uh, another gang member is brought into the ER, uh, and it's the guy. I believe it's MJ. It's the guy who who he, who he immediately recognizes as the car driver. Um, and MJ is wearing the, the, his old favorite watch and he takes MJ's phone and uses his dead thumb to unlock it, uh, to learn, you know, to learn about his contacts. He finds the picture of the GPS. Uh, so he starts tracking down, uh, people. So the other checkups thing I'm going to talk about, there's the targeted ad for the gun store that he goes through f- that he sees on YouTube. Which is, like, I want to say that's over the top. It's not over the top. I've seen gun store ads that are about on that level. But, like, towards the end of the commercials, he's like, ask about our tactical furniture. And there's a side of a coffee table, which the coffee table opens up and an assault weapon comes out on this little swinging shelf thing. You can take him by surprise. And like, well, that better come back. It does. But from there, he finds out, he finds a fence which is where the guy probably got uh, the watch. So he makes he makes an arrangement to meet with this fence. And the fence is immediately suspicious. He does his fencing uh, out of a dive bar that shows ladies thong bowling. I have no idea what channel they're watching, <laughs> but I guess that's a sport. Um, and that's a nice scene with some tension because the fence doesn't trust Kersey. Kersey is trying to sort of play it cool. He's he's a, He's what he's trying to find, he's trying to find out if this fence has his watch, uh, the, the anniversary gift watch. And it's kind of neat. Cause he sees at one point, the fence is going to go for an, a gun behind the bar. So he grabs one of those throwing darts from the dart game, and just rams it through his hand, takes the, uh, takes the fence, uh, hostage and starts going through the fence's warehouse. And so there's a lot of, a lot of stuff happens here, especially because at this point, uh, at this point, uh, the rest of the the crooks who are involved in the home invasion realize that somebody's after them. So they send a guy. I believe is that the 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 fish is the hitman they send after him.
0: I think so. Yeah,
1: yeah. This this lanky guy called the fish. So this hostage situation turns into a full on shootout. Uh, and this is the this is the other thing that just kind of is that I, I Kersey barely suffers any damage in this movie. I kind of wish he took more hits than he does, especially since he's a surgeon and could potentially try to operate on himself. You might as well let him get shot more times than he does.
0: You mentioned that. It, <laughs> it, it, it reminds me of uh, an interview I, I read with, uh, not regarding Bruce Willis, but it was talking about um, The the Rock, where he has some he has an assistant whose job is to be there on every movie and count how many times The Rock gets hit. And it can't be, oh. it has to be less than other people in the movie. Really? Yeah, isn't that strange? <clears throat> compared to that, like... That's... And, and you think of what makes characters like Indiana Jones appealing is that they get punched a lot.
1: <laughs> it, well, you know, that that's that's almost like reverse William Shatner bullshit. Where uh-huh. like supposedly <laughs> Shatner used to rate the quality of his scripts by how many lines he had yes. <laughs> compared to the other leads.
0: On El- Elizabeth Taylor when picking roles would just look at her character's dialogue in the screenplay and nothing else and make the choice based on that. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's really something. But um, so maybe but perhaps this'll... Bruce Willis says, like, I don't want to get shot that much in my movies or I don't know. But I agree that that is sort of a strange choice where this guy who initially injures himself using a gun like now has gains that much more competency so quickly.
1: Also, also keep in mind, he's left-handed he's been firing right-handed ever since he injured his hand and he's apparently a better shot with his right hand
0: ambidextrous and magically skilled at guns who knew
1: uh, but you know there there's also there's a full on shootout uh, both uh, the fence and uh, the fish die the the fence dies cuz the fish accidentally shoots him but uh in the process Paul gets his watch back uh he doesn't get his class ring back but he uh he does get some more cell phones which he uses to track down the other people in the home invasion. This I kind of like because when the police detectives investigate this crime scene they find his class ring and that's when Paul Kersey becomes a suspect in the Grim Reaper killings. Uh both him both him and his brother Frank. Uh, which I kind of wish they did a little bit more with. I think there could have been some more tension to be gained from both of them falling under increased police scrutiny.
0: Cor- correct, and with, um, yeah, so uh, with the plot of the film, as we move along, we we do have a little bit between Paul and, and Frank where he goes back home and his brother has been suspected by the police. Um and and frank you know is is telling his brother like you have to stop doing this you're going to be killed just like your wife
1: yeah cuz frank figures it out
0: mhm uh, which is a nice touch and it's a good scene between the two of them
1: yeah so so that's and, th- and this also comes shortly after frank uh gets you know gets gets a new job and starts paying paul back of the, the money that he'd borrowed um so then we then uh, so the guy who got his face cut up and splashed with boiling hot water uh, turns out he works at a, at a chop shop. So Kersey goes into the chop shop, and this is when Kersey's medical training really becomes a big big part of the script. Um, he uh, he whacks the guy in the groin with a wrench uh, and puts him in a saw type death trap. Uh, he has him all he has him. Uh, tied down under a car that's up on a jack uh he injects him with a he injects him with a chemical which i guess they sort of imp, up imply is truth serum or something akin to that it's they they say the they say the name but it's so mumbled coming out of bruce willis i couldn't pin it down i really wanted to try to l- look this drug up to see how accurate that is although then again anything that makes you feel drunk can function as a truth serum But he starts using his medical knowledge to interrogate the guy. He uh, takes a scalpel and cuts open his leg and talks about there's this nerve back there that's like this tough nerve. And it's supposedly uh, the most pain you can feel without your heart just stopping is if that nerve gets exposed and exposed to a caustic agent. So he pours brake fluid uh, onto the wound, which we see sizzle. Now, I don't know if brake fluid will do that. That seems like something that they tacked on to make it look more horrific and make it read more like pain. So that was a bit of a flourish. I don't think we needed. But this is a brutal scene where he's trying to find out who the rest who the rest of the the gang is uh, from this guy, and he does eventually get uh, he does eventually get the name of uh, of uh, I, I of the last guy who hangs out at this one uh, nightclub. And this is when we get that that really out-of-place quip. So, you know, Kersey just says, well, I guess I'm done here. And he walks away. And the guy's like, you're letting me go? You're not going to kill me? He's like, no, I'm not going to kill you. Jack's going to kill you. And then he yanks a chain connected to the jack. And the car just falls on the guy and the top half of his body explodes.
0: It's a bit Wiley e. Coyote. It, it feels... It's just so different from all the other deaths in the film, and I I think by itself it's not a bad scene, but you mentioned it it does feel like from a different movie, and and you're absolutely right. Like, had all his kills been sadistic like that, I think that could have been an interesting twist for a Death Wish movie. Like, maybe Death Wish is a prequel to Saw. Who knows? Like,
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, it's also hard to keep sympathy with him when he's just outright torturing this guy in the worst possible ways. Um, Like, this is... I like this. This is, I mean, Jack's. I mean, Paul Kersey has. He's been going. This is about him going too far, but this is him going too far, going too far. And I feel like they threw that quip in there so that we'd go back to liking him, but instead, it just like this is this does this scene does not work. This jar is too much with the rest of your movie.
0: It makes him seem like an asshole too, a bit. Yeah, you're gonna make a joke before killing someone when it, like Paul Kersey did have. Quips when played by Charles Bronson, but he did that throughout. If he just did it once, it would have looked weird there too.
1: They were also kind of mild, and a lot of them happened right after someone died. You know, like with with Bruce Willis, it's too with Bruce Willis, it's too smirky and too diehard. It's
0: playing to the camera, yeah,
1: yeah, definitely. But finally, uh, Kersey is going to go after is going to go after the last last of the crooks, which and this is another thing that the movie doesn't. Quite a dress is that so? Everyone's looking for, out for a tall white guy in a hoodie. Well, Bruce Willis is a tall white guy in a hoodie all the time, and nobody seems to notice him or care that he's there. There should be, like, when he walks into the nightclub, people should immediately start clearing out, expecting there to be trouble. Um, the uh, not just that,
0: but Bruce but, Willis being in a hoodie, that's the same thing he wears in um, Unbreakable, Unbreakable and Glass.
1: Well, sort of. Like he has a slicker on over it, yeah, but yeah, it's a yeah. Similar look. I'm al- I'm almost wondering if they're like, well, we can't wear a slicker. That's from another movie, so just do, do the, do the hoodie. hoodie.
0: But I was sort of reminded of that.
1: Uh... But uh, the sh- and the st- the shoot in the club, it's it, it's almost like they're going for like a John Wick vibe because he ends up like this. This is also very Wily Coyote. He sort of he gets into the nightclub and he uh, goes into the men's room. I guess just assuming he'll find his his mark there. And once he enters the restroom, he calls the guy's cell phone and he hears some ringing in a toilet stall. So he just unloads on the toilet stall. But then it turns out the guy he's looking for suspected this was going to happen. And so he hid his phone in the toilet stall, comes in from the entrance of the restroom with a hostage. Uh, Paul Kersey ducks into the stall. There's like bullets. There's bullets fly. Um, Paul Kersey escapes by shooting a fuse box junction that's on the ceiling knocking the lights out. He he escapes in the chaos, but this is when we see him perform surgery on himself. Uh, and, you know, his, his quarry is still out there. Uh, his quarry now knows exactly who's after him, so the movie's setting it up to uh, end as it began with another home invasion. Uh, but this is when uh, Kersey's daughter comes out of her coma. That's right. And you'd almost think her coming out of her coma him now having something to live for again would end it but like bruce or Kersey oh. seems to know that it's not over um so you know he takes her home from the hospital there's a uh, there's a, a really tense scene where he's in the elevator at the hospital with the guy uh from the home invasion which i almost i almost thought was going to go was going to go further so there's a lot of tension there that was pretty effective but uh, he takes, takes his daughter home, uh, sees on a security camera that some strange cars are coming up. So he hides his daughter in a Harry Potter closet, uh, blocks it with a piece of furniture. And I both love and hate this climax because it is Kersey using every trick he's learned.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, it is, you know, it, it is, it is the final resolution. He, the last, of the people responsible for the home invasion dies again. It's close quarters firearm combat. It's very messy. It's very brutal. It's very horrific. But it's, it's almost, it's almost too home alone. It makes yeah. it look too clever and too fun. Because he, spe- he, spends, he spends the whole movie, he spends the whole movie like like out outwitting the home invaders. Like you know, they go upstairs to the bedroom, they shoots up the bed. Well, nope, the bed just has some pillow stuffed in it to look like somebody's sleeping there. But then they hear a shower running, so they go to investigate the shower. or they're distracted by the shower, he comes up out of a linen closet and just shoots their head off. And then another crook comes upstairs to investigate. This okay so this I thought was goddamn brilliant and I'm shocked more movies haven't done this maneuver. The another one of the uh, home invaders comes into the bedroom, sees the dead guy, and they all have assault weapons by the way, sees the dead home invader lying on the floor still holding the assault weapon. But then the assault weapon rises up. It's Bruce Willis hidden under the bed pretending <laughs> that he's got, that he is the arm of that dead guy. Totally a total home alone maneuver. Um But it finally ends with Kersey cornered in his evidence basement. He has a room made of concrete, which is where he's been hanging out, eating Chinese food, being depressed, and watching gun videos on YouTube. And so he's in there. The main home invader comes in. He kicks the coffee table, tactical furniture, takes him by surprise. He's dead. Then we cut to him talking to the police, Basically with his sort of alibi about how I was at home minding my own business. And then they came in and they started shooting at me. And that's how I injured this hand. Uh, And like, it's, it's clear that the police detectives know that he's the Grim Reaper, but it would almost be too much work to take him in. So they're just kind of begrudgingly going along with it.
0: Yeah, the they could is, have done more with that brother, i think the, the detective is well his
1: brother is nearby mm-hmm. i honestly so the two the two things i was waiting to happen and i almost wish did happen is one his brother turned to a life of crime and that and it was going to turn into a brother against brother situation or two his brother who's still a fuck-up and still has trouble finding and keeping work turns himself in confessing to all the killings to spare his brother his brother from jail time Yep. I thought that, mm-hmm. I, that felt like what they were setting up was Frank Kersey turning himself in to spare his brother. But that is not what we get. It's almost too perfect, the nice little bow we get on all this. It's
0: a bit too petty. I think, yeah, your idea of him with the, with the brother, I think, would have been more emotionally satisfying. Um, the detective in this movie just is is such a nothing character compared to um, that, that detective in, in the first two films.
1: uh he doesn't have quite as much personality no uh, you're right and
0: they don't integrate him with the plot as much um i mean his,
1: his partner detective leonore jackson she's like she she has all the personality mm-hmm. she is great yeah
0: she's very good uh, and then at the end of this film it's the same as the end of the first film basically where this famous shot of Kersey using his fingers as a gun pointing at someone
1: yeah he's 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 helping his daughter pack for college. She's getting ready to. She's getting on the bus to leave. Uh, he sees a guy steal a bag from the trunk of a taxi from another from another tra- traveler, and he's like, "Hey!" And then just points to him. Does the Bruce Willis smirk and does the finger guns? And that's when, burr, doo-doo-doo,
0: mm. doo-doo-doo,
1: directed by Eli Roth. Yeah, it's like. And I think, and I think that's the problem. Like when, when that happens in the original Death Wish, that's a very grim scene. Uh, but when it happens in this movie, it's almost celebratory. It's like, oh boy, we're gonna get to see him kill again.
0: Yeah, I thought it was very creepy and, and effective in the original. on this one, it's just like,
1: hey, I made a reference.
0: Oh, here's a, here's a, back in black. Here's a great song everyone loves. Yeah, it's uh so, I mean, overall, this Death Wish movie is just okay. I think it feels unnecessary. It, it could have been worse. It could have been better. It yeah, but it could feels... have been better. Right. I mean, this could have been, I don't know, starring Jason Statham or starring Steven Seagal or, or, <laughs> or whatever it is. But, um, I yeah, if I was making this, I would have put Vincent D'Odofrio in the lead. I think he could have had something more interesting there because he, he has little quirks to his character he's he's funny when he needs to be he he but he really cares for uh his brother uh paul kersey in this and you don't see russell but he Schibney also cares for back. his
1: niece like yeah yeah his the way the way he plays off with jordan kersey is so it's so real
0: right like you said he he's the the fun uncle and and uh it has a lot of heart to it it's nice um, so I, I, give this 2018 Death Wish, uh, a sequel. No, I, uh,
1: it, it feels so, it, it feels very hypocritical for me that I've given sequel yes to pretty much all of the Bronson Death Wish films. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm going to give this a very mild sequel, no. it It is unnecessary. I think it squandered some really good elements. Uh, uh, it, it doesn't know what kind of movie it wants to be. And yet, I would love to see Eli Roth do a sequel to this and take it farther. Like, just go as over the top as Eli Roth wants to go.
0: Well, that's a good segue into pitch a sequel. Um, what, what did he have in mind?
1: Well, I'll do Eli Roth's Death Wish too. So yeah. I do I do want this to go further. So we know from this film that there have been copycat killings. Uh and in fact that's even a thing like a guy it becomes big news when a person puts on a hoodie and tries to do the whole Grim Reaper bit and gets killed in the process. So what I want to do is that uh there are now like the the Bruce Willis uh, that Kersey has. Re- he's still a doctor. Uh, he's retired from his vengeance killings. Like his bloodlust has been satisfied, but the copycats. There are more and more copycats every day, and one day, uh, Frank uh, Frank Kersey gets brought into the uh, gets brought into the into the ER. He's been shot. Turns out. Frank Kersey was trying to do a whole copycat thing and ended up getting shot by another copycat who showed up to intervene with the same crime. And so this makes uh, Kersey decide, well, the real problem isn't the criminals. The problem are the the problem are the uh, vigilantes shooting innocent people. So Kersey becomes the Grim Reaper once again, but starts going after all of the other Grim Reapers. And he Mm. starts a one man war against vigilantes. And the kills will get bigger, more elaborate. There'll be some more death traps. We'll get to meet some of the copycats, see how competent they can be. Uh, will will have uh and the thing is he'll still he will still often kill the criminals that the copycats are also trying to go after but it's always going to be incidental like he'll find a copycat who's got uh, a potential uh, a criminal like tied up in a death trap cursey will kill them both and it just gets bigger and bigger and crazier and crazier uh until it ends with cursey there's there's one su- really successful vigilante who's been doing live webcasts of his killings uh that guy was going to kill off like a big mob kingpin and do it all on a live stream and deliver his manifesto. Well, Kersey comes in. Kills both of them and delivers his own manifesto where he states, "I'm the one and only grim reaper. no one else can, no one else can do this." and tries to sort of basically try, basically lectures all of the potential copycats about why you shouldn't do uh, what he's doing. And I, and I figure if you're going to have a movie that's hypocritical about redemptive violence, make that the point of the movie. Have him give the most hypocritical speech about how violence isn't the answer and how you're only making more problems.
0: And it would just be called Death Wish 2?
1: Uh, Yeah, Death Wish 2, Wish Harder.
0: There you go, okay. Um, If I I was doing a sequel to this one, I would have it be... um, Bruce Willis would start off... There's like some... He's going on vacation with uh, his brother and his daughter and um, they're in their hotel. They're in uh let's say they're in the be they're oh i don't know let's say they're in the beach in mexico or something relaxing at a resort and uh kersey and the daughter are hanging out in the hotel room and the brother you know goes out to to get some get some beers from the market around the street to take back up or get some rum you know to take back up to the hotel room and a- as the brother still played by Vincent D'Onofrio, goes away uh there's this break in in the hotel by these uh hotel employees that you know, or, or undercover crooks or whatever to to fleece people, and uh, the the twist at the very beginning is that Paul Kersey and his daughter get killed, so it's all following <clears throat> Vincent D'Onofrio as the brother. It has to be the new Death Wish person taking on the mantle, and um, it turns out he, I think, uses like a different color hoodie, but. Uh, and so you have similar things, but the, I think the twist of them being in Mexico—he's in a different country. He's trying to track people down. You have the corrupt police uh, in Mexico. You have uh, all the all the gang violence. It, I think it would be something that would be a bit more, a uh, bit more dangerous, a bit more of a stranger in a strange land kind of element. And it would be called uh, death. I just call it like death wish. Yeah, I guess Death Wish 2, anytime I try to think of a subtitle to it, it just would be goofy. L Death wish Deathwish 2, no, Deathwish 2, it's fine. <laughs> and that's it with that, um, so, um, what you been watching, Thrasher? It's been a, a while since we've done an episode, we can probably...
1: It's... It's, it's been a while. It's also been very, very busy. I recently did Dragon Con. Mm. Uh, my wife and I are in the process of moving. Uh, but I have still been able to watch some things. So the last big thing uh, that I watched, <clears throat> I watched the uh, first episode of The Dark Crystal, colon, Age of Resistance. I did as
0: well. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's a prequel, ser- it's prequel to the movie. It's on Netflix. It's done with Muppets, which I love. I thought it was going to be a cartoon or something.
1: Yeah, it's pretty it, it, with uh for at least from what I've seen in the first episode with uh, only a handful of exceptions looks like it's all practical effects mm-hmm. uh and and the exceptions are pretty artfully done. Um overall, I really like this first episode. Um it's it's strange it's it is strange how much like the movie this looks. Like there is exacting detail uh, when it comes to reproducing like some of the sets like you if you told me that those sets still existed from the movie in a warehouse and they just brought them out of mothballs, I would believe you uh, because that 's <clears throat> that 's sort of how authentic this looks uh, I also like and somebody pointed this out there was a, there was a person online who the one thing they didn't like about it was that the Gelfling puppetry has not improved since the '80s. But I kind of like that. I I like that it's using the same old puppetry techniques, uh, and they're still pr- they're still articulate enough for what they need to do. Um, they don't go full on animatronic. Uh, but you know, Mark Hamill is great uh, is great in this. The only the only two things I didn't like, and keep in mind, I'm only talking about the first episode. It's going to be a while before I can sit down and watch the rest of the series. Is that one it opens with a whole bit of uh, expository narration by Sigourney Weaver, which I don't think is strictly necessary, but uh, it, but it is kind of nice because like it's it's all stuff that you probably could reveal later on in the series, and for all I know, maybe it does. So this could be redundant. However, the opening exposition has omits two huge things that we know are facts because of the movie. That I don't understand why they're omitted, is, unless they're just trying to parse. Unless they're trying to parse out the information, or this is made with the expectation that well, you're going to see the movie first, so you already know this, so there's no point telling you. Um, but the other thing is the Skeksis. So the Skeksis again, they're all they're all puppets, but for some reason they keep giving them CGI animated tongues and this, there are enough CGI animated tongues that it gets very, very distracting. If they just had a CGI animated tongue once or twice for, like, a special circumstance, I think it would work fine. But uh, Mark Hamill, as Skektek, the scientist uh, and inventor Skeksis, he gives these long speeches, and all I can do is look at that CGI tongue flopping around in his mouth like it's a uh, like it's a landed eel, uh, is i don't know why they made that choice it seems completely unnecessary
0: i didn't notice the cg ton so i have to be on the lookout for that when i watch more episodes i, I like i like that it's dark i like that it's slower paced kind of like the movie and and th- that it's filmed in uh you know modern day high definition you really get to admire all the nooks and crannies and the details Ivana and i rewatched the original uh, dark crystal film which is on netflix And the transfer there isn't great. It looks kind. A lot of it's kind of like grainy and uh, and not the sharpest image. In fact, when we were watching it, Ivana said, "Oh, it's too bad they don't have a high definition transfer." And I told her this is the high definition transfer. Oh wow! (laughs) And it's not that it looks terrible, but I think especially compared to the TV show, it's um, lacking something. And uh, in some ways, I would have preferred a sequel series, but apparently they did that as a comic book. And, uh,
1: yeah, they did that as a comic book, potentially based on the script mm-hmm. for the sequel that Gendi Tartakovsky was supposed to direct, but right. unfortunately that it, fell through.
0: The, the Jim Henson Company has been trying to do a new Dark Crystal, and a new Labyrinth, for that matter, for, mm. for, for quite some time. And they did a Labyrinth sequel as a comic book uh, in Korea, I think, or illustrated by... Um,
1: uh, I believe that is available in English. I yes, think I've seen yeah, that.
0: Um, uh, I think the script was in English, and it was illustrated in... Uh, by Korean manhwa artist. Uh, I went to the movies last night. I saw It Chapter 2.
1: How is that?
0: Um, How is It? Yeah, uh, so I'm not going to really spoil it, uh, even though it's based on a book that's almost 30 years old at this point. (laughs) Uh, And it's been so long since I've read the book, I don't remember it too much. I remember the 90s miniseries a good bit more. I I I think, um, so the first one was All the Kids. This one is a mixture of the adults and the kids which make it more like the book, but the adult stuff, I think, is less compelling. Um, I didn't find this or the first movie scary, but I think it's well shot. It's well made. Um, And the way they they do kind of the final confrontation with it, um, while a bit cheesy in some respects, is certainly much better than what they did in that 90s miniseries. Uh, So I I thought it was okay. I like the first one better. It feels like there's things... Missing and inconsistent character things, and the director has already talked about doing like a really big cut, recutting the two movies together as like one big thing, perhaps with a different structure. So, um, I imagine we'll see a more complete version of this, uh, later. Um, and this being a Stephen King movie, he doesn't always do this, but there's a good Stephen King cameo. Oh, cool! So, um So, yeah, this is is me being as coy as possible about it. Uh, But Bill Hader is is very good. Um, And the casting of the adults is is well done.
1: I'm glad to hear that. I I very much enjoy Bill Hader's work.
0: Yeah, he's really sort of having a moment between uh, this movie and that that show Barry on HBO that he writes and acts and produces in. Oh, yeah. Quite good. Um. We have a little bit of time. Is there something else you've been watching? I know you've been busy with the conventions and everything, but
1: yeah, I can't. I, unfortunately, I can't say as I, I've seen uh, anything, uh, anything really significant.
0: Uh, okay.
1: Uh, recently,
0: uh, I'll throw something.
1: in. Unfortunately, with all, with all the work sure. I've had to do, I've been a bit out of the loop as far as uh, cinema goes. I'll throw
0: something in. Oh, okay, oh I take yes? that back.
1: I did see. <clears throat> excuse me. I did see the uh, the Dora the Explorer movie.
0: Oh, the live-action one. Um, are you familiar with the yeah. source material?
1: Like, I know of it, and I think I saw one episode 20 years ago.
0: <laughs> Was it? Did it work, then, without knowing that much about the TV show? Was it kind of fun?
1: Some of it. Some of it worked. So this is another example of a movie that doesn't know what it wants to be, because sometimes it's a self-referential satire on Dora the Explorer. Sometimes it is a legitimate, what if this character grew up and had a modern adventure? Sometimes it's a teen comedy uh, sometimes it's a musical and and it's really sort of arbitrary what it is like i it really has the feel of they were working with several different scripts, and that this is just what made it to the screen. It also completely wastes Danny trejo's cameo uh as boots the monkey uh, so as a danny trejo fan i was I was a bit disappointed in that i mean it it's like strangely enough like it it is fun it is entertaining it's but it's not good uh it's just all over the place as far as what its story is there's also there are also some 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 problems that come from the fact that it doesn't know what kind of movie it's going to be, such as there is a CGI animated Fox. And I know that that was the antagonist from the kid show, but a, at one point, the movie, the setup of the movie would seem to imply that what you saw on the TV show are Dora's idealized memories of her own childhood and it, that's a lot of that probably never really happened. It was just games she played with Diego. But then in halfway through the movie, no, there's an actual CGI fox in a mask who can speak English and steal stuff. And it, and yes, one character says, is no one going to talk about the fact that a fox is wearing a mask? Why does a fox need to conceal its identity like that? That's good, but they don't take it farther. Like it just mm. it's like what the fuck is going on in this movie?
0: It sounds like maybe stuff was cut out of it. Like I don't know. It it seemed, but it's a similar problem to what we saw when we talked about those Scooby Doo movies.
1: Oh yeah, it's kind of arbitrary what can talk and what can't. What is real magic and what is fake yes. stuff done just to like scare people off of land for your crooked development deal? Yeah, it, it is. It is kind of like that. And and, and you know, on the other hand, like there there are like there are actually uh uh several south american actors in it who play uh who play this uh this like uh tribe that's protecting this like uh, ancient lost city uh and on the one hand it's great that they actually went to try to find like real uh i guess, is it ne- nepal but like they they tried to find people of the ethnicity of the people that would live in that region of south america oh. but on the other hand they're just there to wear feathers and be scary and be magic native people. So it's not as if it's, it's not as if they're a lot there. They get to truly be characters in their own right. Unfortunately, they do reflect some, some stereotypes. And so, so yeah, I guess it's like, it's an entertaining bad movie. If you don't see it, you're not missing anything. Uh, it, you know what? It might be, it might be really fun to watch stoned now that I think about it.
0: Good point. Um, I I caught something. It's a movie that's unavailable on DVD and Blu-ray. I had to track it down on YouTube, and I was interested in it because I'm reading the book, uh, and it is Wired, the biopic of John Belushi, starring Michael oh. Chiklis. Uh, it's it's quite odd,
1: isn't it? Like the 20th anniversary of that movie right now.
0: Um, it's older than that, but uh,
1: maybe it's the 30th. It, it could be
0: 30th, but uh, it's a movie that um. Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi's family tried to prevent from getting released and all these things and uh, it's it's quite strange. So the book is this sort
1: Oh, yeah, it's the 30th anniversary. Okay.
0: That the the book uh, wired, I don't know if you've read it, but it's this kind of it's by Bob Woodward who uh, does usually political books, but this one was uh, about Belushi is kind of a assorted focuses so much on John Belushi's drug use and all this stuff. Um, which it is true and unfortunate. And there, there's, you know, um, John Belushi's family claims the book overstresses that amount and is kind of one-sided. But, uh, I don't know, I'm still reading it. But I was curious to track down this movie and I was watching it. And it, structurally, it's baffling. So, Thrasher, let's say you're doing a movie about the life of John Belushi. Right. Um, part Half of this movie, this feels like two bad movies pasted together. One has the author Bob Woodward as a character interviewing Belushi's wife, or John Belushi's wife, and interviewing uh, people that were with him in his last few days. The other part is John Belushi is taken to the morgue, having just died of an overdose, and he wakes up. And he goes out into the street, goes into a taxi cab, is drab- uh, drived around by a taxi cab driver named Angel, and is taken on a this-is-your-life journey through his Best of moments of his career.
1: Oh, that's that's too many layers. Both of those things, at and once.
0: that they intercut. It's they never the stories never meet up with each other. It's such a bizarre and arbitrary choice. And uh, Michael Chiklis, for what it's worth, does a good job as like John Belushi. And uh, but weirdly, like some stuff they couldn't get the rights to. So it shows them like as the Blues Brothers performing. But when it shows them doing SNL skits, they couldn't recreate SNL skits. So they do um, fake bad SNL skits, like uh, as the samurai. It's a, it's a it's a painful sketch called Samurai Baseball, where he has the katana and you know tries to swing it at the ball and doesn't really grunt like and that and and I don't think he really resembles John Belushi. He kind of gets the voice down, but he gets a lot of mannerisms down, and so does the actor that plays Dan Aykroyd and some of the other ones. <laughs> Um, but it's like, I would rather see a documentary about this material. If you're going to do this as a biopic, why, why have it be this, like, it, it has this weird gruesome fixation of John Belushi coming back from the dead. Not only that, he goes back to the morgue and sees his own organs being taken out and you have dialogue of, of <laughs> the, uh, the coroner saying stuff like, well, his heart is twice the size of a normal man. Must be all the drugs he took or, or whatever.
1: okay so this this sounds so crazy i think i've got to see it i
0: I, I will send you a a, a link um it it it's from a vhs the quality is very picture quality is very poor so keep that in mind we all grew up with vhs we know what that looks like especially in modern high definition screens but it was never released on dvd or blu-ray at least in the united states a lot of people try to pretend this movie doesn't exist um and uh, I found a very interesting interview on YouTube with the star Michael Chiklis, who of course now is famous for things like The Shield or The Commish, uh saying how this was the first acting role he got uh, out of college, and he had no idea of the controversy that the Belushis were trying to quash it until he was almost done making the picture, and after making this movie, he was blackballed for about six months. Oh, wow. So think of that. You're a new actor. You're getting a lead in this movie. You're... Playing one of your idols, John Belushi, uh, and uh, it it doesn't you know launch your career like you thought it would.
1: So I noticed that the screenplay so it's based on the book by Bob Woodward, but the screenplay is by uh, Earl Mac Roche, uh, yes. who created Buckaroo Banzai. Uh huh.
0: Yeah. Um. So so maybe that's why it's a bit bizarre. <laughs> I I don't know. Like it's. Structurally, it's so damn weird. And uh, there's the Siskel and Ebert review of this movie uh, I found on YouTube as well. And uh, they comment, too, about the structure and that it's not the acting that's the problem. But it's, yeah, yeah how they do it is, is just damn strange.
1: You know, that that's something I think I would like us to do going forward. Because I had so much fun with it uh, when we started doing Death Wish. Of just like if we can find a Siskel and Ebert review for the movie we're doing, we might as well like talk about it.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good point. It's a the how it was received at the time. I think is is important to to keep in mind.
1: It's also fascinating to see what other movies were being reviewed by them around the same time. Just because they had they had such eclectic films they would talk about. Um, another thing that occurs to me since we brought up *Bunker uh, and Bonsai* uh, and *Dark Crystal*, Cole, and *Age of Resistance*. So, I feel like now we are the closest we have ever been to actually getting Buckaroo Bonsai versus the World Crime League. But do you think that's going to happen in our lifetime?
0: I, I, I do. There's so many odd things that they've come out to sequels with that you think they shouldn't. That we're getting a Bill and Ted 3, right? That we're getting... I can't wait. Yeah, no, it looks good from the same writers and everything. Uh, I, I just have no idea. It's, But I, I really hope... Um, We do, and did they do that as a comic book, or is that not true? For some reason, I thought there there was talks of it, maybe.
1: There was, so there was a, the PlayStation 2 era, there was a Buckaroo Banzai video game in the works uh, that would have been a, uh, I, I believe the metafictional premise of the game is it's the video game adaptation of Buckaroo Banzai vs. the World Crime League. The deal fell through. It was not made. But they took some of the CGI elements that they had developed for cutscenes for that movie uh, and then turned that into a sizzle reel for a Buckaroo Banzai TV series that would have come out around the same time as Lost. But again, they never sold the series. But that test reel is pretty... Crazy! It's it's the it's the Buckaroo Bonzai, the Overthruster truck driving through different environments, dealing with like gangsters and aliens and things like that. And, and, and uh, you said this was setting up these a, weird a PlayStation experiments. Two
0: era. So did it look like stylized or kind of poor? It,
1: it was it was not stylized. Mm. I mean, there were some flourishes. Like there's this bit where in the middle of a cornfield, there's like this massive transmission tower, and the top of the, at the top of the transmission tower is an actual colander uh not a not a normal satellite dish but it looks like a regular colander like nothing they didn't really exaggerate anything it would have looked great as a cutscene, uh but like that that level of cgi on television wouldn't have worked
0: right um and and i I recall even a few years ago there was talks of uh, kevin smith um writing a buckaroo bonsai a TV show pilot or something that didn't go off the ground. So there's, there's been, well, he's doing He-Man now. He's doing He-Man. Yeah. Um, which apparently he's a big He-Man fan. I listened to him on, uh, one of his podcasts, um, Fat Man on Batman, I guess he was talking about it. And I thought, well, why on Netflix? But then I realized, oh, Netflix has had She-Ra for like three seasons now, which I haven't seen. I've heard it's good, (laughs) but, um,
1: apparently. No, it is. It, I can I can say with confidence it is a better show than the original. Um, yeah. There is a shocking amount of world building and character relationships that are developed in it. That being said, there is an episode that pays tribute the original, where there's a one scene that is animated what like the old show, uh, and the and the current voice actors do impressions of the old voice actors. It's it's, it's rather a delightful uh, episode. From right?
0: what I understand, the uh, the new Masters of the Universe He-Man series is going to be its own thing in a separate canon. It's not going to do a crossover. Well, yeah, apparently it's, either-
1: it's a. Yeah, it's, apparently, it's not a remake like the She-Ra no. is. It apparently is meant to be a direct sequel that will pick up shortly after where the old series left off. Although, keeping in mind, like it's not like the old series ended with an unresolved cliffhanger. It just ended. Right, um, but- although, strangely yeah. enough, in the 90s, there was an attempt to bring back He-Man with the exact same premise – uh, only it was going to be, I think, like roughly maybe 10 years had passed between the end of the original series and when this new series well, was supposed that, to start. That, that so I think was it was more, supposed to have a that's 10-year That's one that looked job. more
0: like anime. I seem to recall they had an episode where Skeletor is human. Or are you talking about the one where they're no, no, in no, space? That,
1: that did get made, the one you just described, did get made uh, Early in 2000s. the uh, mid-2000s. Okay. Uh, it was on Cartoon Network. That was a separate project. Uh, the one that was from the 90s that they were trying to make was going to be, I hate to say it, but the grim and gritty version. It was like the grim and gritty follow-up that took place 10 years later. The new He-Man Adventures is the one where they are in outer space, and that was in the late 80s. He-Man is a property that has never gone away, uh, despite what people might think. And hey, that movie with Frank with uh, was it Frank Langella and uh, Dolph Lundgren and Billy Barty? I rewatched that recently. That's a good bad movie. That is well worth your time. Um, I did.
0: We'll get to the Death Wish quotes in a second, listeners. But while we're on He-Man, I did see this Netflix uh, documentary on Masters of the Universe. I don't quite remember the title. It might be by the Bower of Grace. was that, pa- or was something that part like that. of
1: the toys that made us?
0: Uh, this is separate, but it's uh, imagine that "Toys of Meta" segment stretched out to a feature, although it's made by different people.
1: Uh,
0: but but towards the end, they do talk. Uh, they talk to Frank Langella and Dolph Lundgren a bit about that film. Courtney Cox nice. could not be reached for comment. So, um, and Frank Langella still says it's one of his favorite roles ever, And that he worked with the writers. Oh, you can tell he's having- yeah. That he worked with.
1: He's having a great
0: time. He worked with the writers to rewrite the dialogue to make it more like Joseph Campbell and, and Shakespearean and mythic. And uh, his son was a nice. huge fan of He Man, so that's why he did the part. And he took his son to the movie premiere, and his son fell asleep for the whole movie. Um,
1: <laughs> I don't, so I don't know what's worse, that story or the. Wait, Dad, I don't need shoes that bad. I think bad the Dad, story. I don't need shoes
0: that bad. Mario Brothers story is. Uh, that one's hard well, to Well, there's beat. some wit that's in there. Speaking of great quotes from this Death Wish movie, so we have we're looking here at the Internet Movie Database Death Wish quotes page, and you said because it's so many uh, brief quotes, we're just going to do a whole bunch of them.
1: There's yeah, there's there's just like nothing. so really, I, mean, I hate to say it, there are no memorable lines. I mean, even even the Jack's going to kill you is that line is memorable, but it's memorable in its badness. So we thought we would just take the entire quotes page. And we would just read the entire quotes page, and we'll just alternate between lines. We'll just switch up, and whoever we land on, that's who we get.
0: Sounds good, and we're not going to set the scene, but I mean, these are, um, we will also uh, read kind of the scene description if necessary to give a little bit of context, but it's Death Wish, this isn't Shakespeare, this is not terribly complicated.
1: Oh, and also apparently one of the lines here is only from the trailer and is not used in the movie.
0: Um. Okay, does it say that in the... And and it's a whip. uh, Funny. All right. Let's go. Oh, I see it says from trailer. Okay, yeah. Um, So uh, why don't you start?
1: All right. People rely on the police to keep them safe. That's the problem. The police only arrive after the crime has taken place. That's like trapping the fox as he's coming out of the hidden house. If a man really wants to protect what's his, he has to do it for himself. Who are you? Your last customer. So Paul shoots the punk yeah. leader.
0: So, so there's nothing I can do. Is is that what you're saying?
1: You can have faith.
0: How did faith work?
1: Paul looks at a bulletin board of unsolved murder cases. Uh,
0: how did faith work out for those people?
1: You're not gonna kill me.
0: No, Jack is. Paul.
1: Paul yanks the chain, pulling the jack out from under the car, falling on Joe's head.
0: Are you you satisfied? satisfied? Oh, shit. No. (laughs) Reigns grabs a slice of pizza.
1: Now I'm satisfied.
0: Are you that doctor? doctor?
1: Yeah, I am that doctor. And right now, I'm your doctor. What does that even mean? And those are all (laughs) the... Jumbled quotes, yeah.
0: I mean, they, it, it shows you kind of the from what I've heard that the screenplay is credited to Joe Carnahan, but I heard his original version of the screenplay was a lot smarter and quite a lot of it was rewritten by Eli Roth. Um,
1: well, that that, that might explain some of the tonal shifts to the uh,
0: be, um, because I think Carnahan was supposed to direct it originally as well. Um, one last thing before we go, wow. I got a very nice note from an old sequel cast listener. Uh, cool. Name. Um, I don't want to give his full name, but he, his uh, name is Christopher. He starts off his letter with, "I doubt you will remember me," um, which <laughs> I told him I didn't, but I thanked him. And he, once he wrote us about ideas for an episode, is doing a, a special episode on obscure Christmas specials, recommending a diva's Christmas
1: carol. I could totally go for mm-hmm. that. I I love cheesy yeah, Christmas no lack specials. Yeah, no of Christmas
0: specials. He said that he likes that we're uploading old and I'm paraphrasing here to save time, but he says that we like uh he says we were one of the first podcasts he ever listened to and uh except when we do a wow. franchise he hasn't seen, he likes to wait until it was over to get to episodes of stuff that he has seen. Um and uh, he's ex- he's excited we're uploading the old episodes like the Ninja Turtles we did this past week and to keep it going and um and then we go back and forth, in that he uh found some old episodes when we did the a Universe things on an old laptop of his, which is sort of fun, but yeah, eventually uh christopher all all those, those old episodes will be in the new feed i i'm I'm taking my time it's well over two hundred something episodes, and i'm I'm making the graphic for it and kind of writing a mini review and a description thing while well, that helps all that helps with the downloads. Uh, so eventually they'll all be up there, but I'm glad you're liking the old episodes. Uh, and it's nice to fill in the gaps when we're busy as uh, this, this past summer has been an especially busy one with, with, Oh yeah. Thrasher doing the convention circuit. Um, me with work and me also, I did some vacation too. So, uh, was unavailable to record some time. So, uh, th- thanks for sticking in there and, uh, yeah. Uh, thanks for sending the note. That was very nice.
1: Oh yeah. Thank you, man. Yep. Um, or woman, uh, I I just realized I don't know uh, I don't know which flavor of Chris this is, but Chris, thank you.
0: Yep. Um, so, with uh, with that note, um, next time we'll be covering. We originally said Wayne's World, but I lied. I'm I'm still working to get stuff. I I, I want to go. I want to go <laughs> in a little rant here, but when I moved into where I'm moving now, I was working a lot of overtime. Because of that, I, I couldn't really control how my stuff was moved. So I had my DVDs in these boxes, and they were thrown in the back of storage in the most difficult-to-get spot. So I've been half a dozen times, haven't been able to retrieve this box with all these DVDs in it. But I think I'm close to figuring out where it is in this maze of a storage unit. Cool. Have you ever had that situation?
1: <clears throat> sort of, if only because... Uh, uh, so my my wife and I so as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode I'm I'm in the process of moving my wife and I had been doing house hunting for about two months but to expedite the move we had rented a storage unit and had been moving things out of the house into that store out of our current place into that storage unit while we were searching just to make the the eventual move easier uh, there was a point where we realized we had loaded into that storage unit something we actually oh, needed. No. Uh, <laughs> And like, and, and the thing is, it wasn't that we couldn't find it. I knew exactly where in the storage unit it was. It's just that it was behind a whole bunch of other stuff, and I had to pull things out and rearrange to get access to it. Thankfully, we only went through that once. Right,
0: and it's... Uh... <clears throat> yeah, and I'm just surprised how expensive storage units can be. But... There you go. Our listeners, I'm sure, are fascinated at that piece of knowledge. Okay, um, you can next week. We will be talking about not Wayne's World, but a trilogy of comedies from the 80s that will probably be problematic as we talk about them.
1: Oh, I bet. Uh, based based on my weird memories yeah. of this series, I am sure there's plenty of objectionable material. It is, it is
0: Porky's, consisting of Porky's, Porky's Two, and Porky's Revenge. I have never seen any of the Porky's movies. I I, I was tempted to rent them. Uh, uh, when I worked at Blockbuster Video and and felt I guess kind of self conscious or embarrassed, <laughs> that that poster to the original Porky's is a real classic.
1: Is it one of those uh, those uh, classic 1980s like drawn posters where it's all the characters like getting up to interconnected hygiene? No, but I
0: think it's like a, a shower with a peephole or something. Like it's this very iconic 80s image. Like you look at that and you think, oh yeah, this is an 80s sex comedy. Like it knows exactly what it's selling.
1: Yeah, and it was and it was uh heavily referenced as, uh, in the 90s as I recall, but I know we'll we'll talk about that. Uh, oh, and now I see the poster you're talking about. Yeah, we'll we'll uh we will uh, absolutely talk about the <laughs> talk about its cultural impact uh, as we uh, as we go through the series.
0: I'm reminded of a not very good joke from uh, do you remember after the Cosby show Bill Cosby did a show I think just called Cosby, but it still had Felicia Rashad yes, and his wife Madeline Kahn. Yeah. Um and and on that one, there is a joke. He goes to the video store to rent a movie, and he says, uh, I-, I want Porgy and Bess. And the guy says, we don't have Porgy and Bess, but we do have Porky's 1, 2, and 3.
1: Well, that counts as a joke. I suppose. Yeah.
0: Um, but that's what I always think when I think of Porkies for some reason. So, yeah, we'll be talking about that next time. Uh, follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T.
1: You can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Also, if you like fantasy-themed fashion accessories, I am involved in a Kickstarter, uh, the Petite Potion Pins Kickstarter. I designed a series of... uh, alchemy-themed potions, uh, and we're turning them into enamel pins. Uh, And our stretch goals include some variant colors, some variant uh, bottle shapes, uh, glitter pins. We are uh, rapidly approaching our first uh, stretch goal uh, as of uh, this release. Uh, So definitely check it out. Search for Petite Potion Pins. Uh, That is the Kickstarter I am currently involved in.
0: Uh, I have a book coming out at the end of September called The Films of Uwe Boll, Volume 1, The Video Game Movies. Uh, You can pre-order that on Amazon com. Uh, right now, I think it just lists the Kindle version, but we will be getting a physical version and um, a, a version on uh, Audible as well, an audio version.
1: I have my physical version pre-ordered. Thank
0: you, sir. Um, if you like the show... Quite, quite welcome. If you like the show, even if you don't, leave a review on the Apple Podcast app. Every time someone <laughs> does that, it helps. I'd love to see what people think. Or you can send us an email at sequelcast at gmail dot com. Um...
1: Yes, as algorithms have shown us, there's no such thing as bad engagement.
0: You know, speaking of engagement, I looked at the all-time stats on Subucast 2, and some of her most downloaded episodes are Lords of the Ring, Lord of the Rings, and I'm not sure why that is. Also, uh, it's a
1: well-known, beloved series. I, I would presume that would be the, the primary the, draw.
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe the upcoming Amazon series, or um, yeah, who knows? It's a perennial. As, what what, what did they say back when we did the newspaper uh, our episodes are evergreen <laughs>
1: yeah okay well if it's already old it can't really get older so that's true
0: one person's old is another person's new it's new to me as they say okay so um, for sequel cast this is Matt
1: and this is Thrasher sorry
0: for sequel cast 2 this oh our theme songs by Mark with the C. okay do that again <laughs> check him out at markwiththec.com. Yes, uh, for sequel cast 2 this is Matt
1: and this is threshold. There's no such thing as a law-abiding criminal, which is something that sounds profound, but isn't.
0: That sounds profound, but isn't is a good uh, description of this 2018 Death Wish film.
1: <laughs> well, there you go.
0: That was a good one. Bullshit. Let's get stupid rich) Good luck with it. Good luck with your sequel cast.